0: The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 1, 15-23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Redeemer, you can be seated. It's been a great blessing to be able to see you all today. Um, Our family moved to Concord just about five months ago. Feels like just yesterday, uh, but we have deeply, deeply missed all of you. Um, So it is just such a, a blessing to be able to see so many familiar faces and to be able to join you here today in worship and open God's word. You and I live in a world where we can learn almost any skill from almost any teacher. Thank you to technology. The 21st century phenomenon of YouTube is probably our greatest example of this. Now, a quick show of hands, how many of you would say you've learned a new skill from watching a YouTube video within the last year? Fair, fair proportion of the room, right? Studies show that how-to searches on the YouTube platform increased by 70%, year over year, as YouTube becomes not just a place for mindless entertainment, but also for sharing knowledge and skills. Now, when I was teaching myself guitar in high school, it was the early 2000s, the early advent of the YouTube era, so what did I do? Went on YouTube, watched videos of guitarists far better than myself, and I just tried to copy what they were doing. Ladies, you want to learn a new way to put on your makeup? Pull up a YouTube. YouTube. Men, if Fuquay Tire is too busy and you can't take it somewhere to pay for it, you want to change your oil? Go to YouTube, they'll teach you. Just got back from an Ikea shopping spree. No more reading their hieroglyphic instruction manuals, just watch a video of someone else struggling through it and do what they did, all for free. You see, we learn really well, probably learn best, honestly, by watching And with something like YouTube, as long as you sift through the big mess of everyone in the world being able to upload their own content, you can actually find instruction and help from some of the most skilled people in the world at whatever they're doing. It's all there, right at your fingertips. You find an expert, watch them at work, and you follow in their steps. Now, for followers of Christ, one of the skills that we should constantly aim to develop is our prayer life. Specifically today, we'll talk about praying for our church family, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm sure all of us know that we should do this. You probably agree, yeah, we should pray for our church family, but I think all of us can admit this is an area that we need to grow. Even as Don led us through the confession of sin and in the verses that we looked at there, I felt a level of conviction that I want to grow in this, praying for you guys, praying for the people that we're meeting with now in the Concord area as we begin to form our church church. Praying for the church on a regular basis is an area I can certainly grow. And this is one of those spiritual skills where we learn best by watching someone far further along than we are. You might be getting concerned here as i just talked about YouTube. I'm not going to direct you to YouTube to sharpen your spiritual skills or your prayer life, but on the pages of scripture here in Ephesians chapter 1, we have this shining example of how to pray for the church. It's not just a command that says, hey, you ought to pray for the church, but we get to see the Apostle Paul actually give voice to his prayer for the brothers and sisters of the church at Ephesus. And since this prayer actually made it on the pages of Scripture, we know that it's Holy Spirit inspired, that it has God's stamp of approval, that this is the kind of prayer we ought to pray. So if we want to sharpen our skills in praying for our fellow Christians, for our church family, let's watch the Apostle Paul at work and let's follow in his steps. Since we haven't been in a series on the book of Ephesians, and we're just parachuting in for a day, um, I want to take a moment to provide a little bit of context on what's going on here in this letter. This letter is called Ephesians because it's written by the Apostle Paul to the ancient church at Ephesus. If you're ever looking through a lot of these New Testament books and they have these names, the the letter to the Philippians was written to the church at Philippi. The letter of Colossians was written to the church at Colossae. If Paul was writing a letter to us today, it might be called Fuquavians. It's kind of named after the city that it's written to. And Ephesus was a city located on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. Now, when Paul was writing this, he was probably in prison for preaching the gospel, and he was writing letters to the churches that he had planted just to give them encouragement and instruction in how to follow after God. So he came across the time that he felt the need to write the letter to the church at Ephesus. If you look at this book as a whole, at this letter, the first half of it is just this lofty extolling God for the gospel and it's this exposition and a celebration of everything that we have in the perfect life the substitutionary death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ then the second half of it kind of moves from that if all that is true all these things we have in Christ then how should we live how should this transform us how should this play itself out in our lives but today we're still looking at the very beginning the very first chapter of this letter And in verses 1 through 14 that happened just before where we find ourselves today, Paul has begun by introducing himself and just giving praise to God for the saving work of Christ. Paul reflects on the beauty of this message. He he does something just kind of out of nowhere. He just shifts into this prayer for the church. As we'll see, it's, it's almost like he's compelled to pray on the spot. Like He talks about all these amazing things that we have in Jesus and that he can't help but just burst into prayer for the people that he's writing to. And he seems to pray just that his readers would really get it. He said all these amazing things and he wants them to really understand just how good is this news and how much hope it ought to provide for them. He prays that the truth of Jesus wouldn't just be a theory or a doctrine that's hanging up here in the air, but that it would really come down into their lives and change them at their very core. Brothers and sisters, when we reflect on the beauty of what Jesus has done for us, I hope that it stirs us to pray in this way for ourselves, for the believers in Christ that God has paired us up with right here in our local church. Here's what's cool about a prayer like this as we start to get into this today you don't need a specific prayer request to be able to pray in this way. Maybe you've encountered this before. You're, it's easy when we have a Slack channel and we have these prayer requests coming through. We can pray right on the spot for things that come up, for needs that are in people's lives. But sometimes, maybe we know that we ought to pray for the entire church family at Redeemer. We don't necessarily know where to start. Or maybe if you have a, a practice of praying through the church directory, like what, what things do you pray? When your elders gather, they pray through every name in the church every single member, and what, what do you pray? Where do you start if you don't have a specific situation to pray into or an itemized list? But this prayer that Paul prays, this is one that applies every day to every Christian that you know, no matter their circumstance. So taking Paul's prayer as our guide, we're going to see six ways that we can pray for our church. Read with me in verses 15 and 16 to see our first. For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. We see here the first thing, that we should thank God for evident spiritual fruit. Thank God for evident spiritual fruit. If you're like me, I think the tendency is probably to jump right into asking for things in prayer. It's kind of the way that we're wired. Whether you're praying about your own life or the lives of others, or the life of your church family, you probably think just to begin asking for things. And why is that? Of course, there's a good side of it, right? We care about needs. We care about hurts. We care about the difficulties going on in our lives and the lives of others. And we know that God can move in those areas. And we know that God can step in and do something. But beyond that, I think we have this bent in our sinful flesh to dwell more on what's not right rather than to celebrate what is. To think about what we want, and what we need, rather than reflecting on what we have. But beginning with thanksgiving, like we see in verse 15 and 16, this is a helpful corrective to us. So in this spirit-inspired prayer of Paul's, we see him begin just bursting forth into thankfulness for the work that God is already doing before he asks for anything. He looks at the Ephesian church and he sees two things. He sees faith in Jesus and he sees love for one another and then he celebrates it. He even goes so far to say that he does not stop giving thanks for them, remembering them as he prays. And it almost seems like this constant thanksgiving, it's ongoing. Every time he looks at the church of Ephesus, it's like he just can't get over this beautiful display of God's grace that he sees at work within them, and he thanks God for it. Now Notice a couple things with me here. First and foremost, he directs his praise to God, not to the Ephesians. Seems basic, but it's a subtle thing that we can sometimes overlook. He doesn't say, first off, Ephesus, you guys are awesome. No, he says, hey, Ephesus, I see your faith in Jesus, and I see your love for the saints. Those things are awesome, and I give glory to God for it. I thank him for it. I know we didn't read those first 14 verses that I talked about in this chapter, but if we went back and read those, you'd see that those verses are simply Paul praising God for Every aspect of salvation, for God taking initiative and single handedly accomplishing salvation apart from anything we or the church at Ephesus or any Christian could ever do. He says in every possible way, from from every angle. He says God saved you, God chose you, God blessed you, God sealed you, God redeemed you, and He did it all for His glory and all by His grace. So. While he praises a great thing he sees amongst the Ephesians, he doesn't praise them for it, he praises God for it. And we should see this, and we should give thanks to God alone for every bit of spiritual good that we see in ourselves, in fellow Christians, or in our churches. And notice, second, that he thanks God for two very simple, very fundamental things. Faith in Jesus, love for one another. They believed and trusted God, and they loved their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's it. They're meeting the mark. They nailed it. Not in their own strength, but in God's strength. He he doesn't come to God thanking him for the attendance of the church at Ephesus, that there's lots of people. He doesn't thank God for a thriving singles ministry or financial security in the church or more Sunday volunteers or great singing or preaching, all these things that we could see on the surface, which are all good things. Those are important. But no, he thanks God that by his grace and by his transformative power that they're fulfilling the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he can't stop giving God thanks for it. So, Redeemers, you make time to pray for, hopefully, the entire Redeemer family, for your community group, or maybe going name by name through the membership directory, a few, a few names per day. And I want to encourage you throughout this whole message I hope you will just make a practice of that. Begin with thanksgiving to God for every bit of spiritual fruit that you see. Thank him that this is a church that's built on worshiping God in spirit and in truth, that preaches his word. Thank him that this is a place where you see acting or you see acts of loving sacrifice amongst one another day after day, week after week. Thank him for glimmers of spiritual growth, for every little bit of spiritual growth that you see in this church, and increasing faith in the Lord Jesus. Maybe you see the children of this church as you're serving in the children's ministry, just grasp a little bit more of the gospel and how beautiful it is. Maybe in your community group, that person who's never spoken up prays out loud for the first time, or answers a question for the first time and contributes to the discussion. Maybe you see someone in this church trusting Jesus as they suffer through pain. Whatever it is, wherever you see these displays of faith, these displays of love, thank God for it. Battle your flesh's innate desire to start thinking about what you perceive to be lacking. Of course, all of us have those things, all these things we'd love to ask for, but start out by turning over every proverbial rock. Seeing evidence of God's grace in this church and in one another and praise God for it because he alone deserves the credit. Now Thanksgiving is where Paul starts, but it's of course not where he stops. He does pray for more spiritual fruit, and we should too, for a deepening faith in the Lord Jesus. The same faith he just thanked God for. And we'll see this request flow through the rest of this prayer. So let's look back to verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. You see it right there in the text, verse 17, that one of the main things we should be asking for is to pray that we would know God better, to pray that we would know God better. Church, we should have a holy discontentment regarding how much we know of God, both personally and collectively. Never to induce shame, but we should have this holy yearning within us to just know him more, to burrow down more deeply into his truth and understand more of all that we have in Jesus. We should seek to believe him more, to know him more, and in so doing, to love him more deeply. For all, the very reason that God saved us is that we might know him. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 17. We actually get to see Jesus pray for the church. We see Jesus speaking to God on our behalf. And he says this in John chapter 17. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So if Jesus himself describes the blessing of eternal life as knowing God in this life and in the age to come, then that's the blessing that we should burrow down deeply into with everything that we have. After all, isn't this the very reason that we gather together week after week to do the same thing we did the week before? To sing the same songs we've sung a thousand times before? To listen to the same book and the same Savior proclaimed? To take the same bread and the same cup? By the way, I've missed the Redeemer communion bread. Is Great blessing to have it in first service. To see and be known by the same people. There's something in us that always wants something new and novel, but that's not what we need. What we need is to dig deeper into what we already know and what we already have. So as Paul prays in this prayer, he's essentially saying to the Lord, Father, they know you. They know you and they believe you and they have faith in you and they love one another. Look how amazing this is, but God, don't let it stop there he prays that they would know him better that they would keep on going that their knowledge of their salvation would keep on deepening now notice here that the deeper knowledge of god it comes by the holy spirit it's not natural to us it's not something we can work up by our own will it is supernaturally given by god just as our salvation was accomplished for us by jesus christ apart from any contribution of our own, our ongoing knowledge of God and our growing wisdom and understanding of who he is, those things are applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Actually, if you look closely at this verse, we see this just beautiful theological truth. We see every person of our triune God at work in every aspect of our salvation. Notice that Paul asks the Father of the Lord Jesus to give the Spirit so that we can know him better. From beginning to end, Father, Son, and Spirit are at work together in our salvation. I've heard it said by theologians before that salvation is arranged by the Father, it's accomplished by the Son, and it's applied by the Spirit. And what a beautiful picture. God is the reason we came to faith in the first place. Jesus is the reason that our sins can be forgiven in the first place, and the Spirit is the reason that we've come to faith, the reason that we're able to continue growing in our knowledge of him. It's God's work from start to finish just drawing us deeper and deeper into himself and the knowledge of him. Now this is how we can actually have confidence that we can pray for this because it's God's work, right? If you're praying for the people around you to grow in their faith and they're praying for you to grow in your faith, if it's up to you, your effort and your abilities and your will, if it's up to you to grow more deeply in the knowledge of God, you've got to figure it out yourself. No reason to pray for it. Like Morgan Freeman said so eloquently in The Dark Knight, good luck. But if it's by the Spirit's work in them and in you, then this is a whole different story. If it's by God's power, then by praying, you're actually going to the right person. And you can rest assured your prayers actually do something, and this is the kind of prayer that God gives His yes to. So as you pray for spiritual growth in your own life and the life of Redeemer broadly, pray with confidence. Ask that God would, by his spirit, deepen our collective desire to read his word daily, to memorize and to meditate on it, to obey it when it's difficult, to attentively listen to the preaching and teaching of his word in gatherings. Ask that God would grant understanding as we do so, that the word wouldn't merely fly over our heads or or pass us by, but that it would open our eyes and open our hearts to what is true, good, and beautiful in the sight of God. Ask him that we would individually and collectively have the mind of Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. That we would think like he thinks, having wisdom from his spirit within us. This is a way you can even get more specific in trying to put this kind of prayer into practice, especially with those that you know closely in this congregation. So an assignment for you is, when you walk out of here today, maybe at some point this week, but try to do it today while you're thinking about it, Find someone who's in your community group that you see on a regular basis. Ask them how they would like to grow more deeply in the knowledge of God. Maybe it's prayer, maybe it's reading his word. There's a million different answers they could give. Then share with them one way that you want to begin growing in the knowledge of God. And then commit to pray for one another regularly and follow up. And see if God won't do something amazing in both of your spiritual lives. After all, it gives us something that we can pray for that goes right in line with this verse that we're reading through today. So we see Paul pray that the Ephesians would know God better, but he follows this with just a greater unfolding of what they need to know. In the next few verses, we see that the knowledge he's talking about isn't an intellectual knowledge of information, but it's a deep embrace, it's total reliance upon these truths. Let's read verses 18 and 19 together and we'll continue to unpack it. Verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. So we're going to look at three things here in these two verses hope, inheritance, and power. We'll go through them one by one. The 2nd we'll need a little more explanation, but we'll get there in a minute. First, the hope to which he has called us. We see in verse 18 that in praying for the church, we should pray that we remember our hope. Pray that we remember our hope. Now, what is our ultimate hope as Christians? Is it something that might happen? Is it something that we hope to see, but really can't be sure? Is it a pipe dream? You see, in our language, in our everyday usage of the word hope, we've really, really watered it down. For example, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. suburbs in Sterling, Virginia, and I have been a lifelong Washington fan, Washington football team, commanders, whatever you feel like calling them. feels up in the air right now. (laughs) Uh, At their last Super Bowl win, I was barely over a year old. It was 1992. I was alive when it happened, but I've got zero recollection of it, and I've watched pretty much every season. I've seen nothing close to a Super Bowl win. I hope that before I die that I will see the the Washington guys win a Super Bowl, (laughs) but that's all it is. That's a pipe dream. Is Christian hope like that? By no means. Friends, Christian hope is absolute rock-solid assurance and certainty of our future in Christ. It's unshakable confidence that our salvation will be completed with a resurrected body, never to get sick or die again, being fully conformed to the likeness of Jesus, with total freedom from sin, even from temptation, living forever in a perfected heaven and earth, perfect unity with God, and eternal life from everlasting to everlasting. Friends, this is hope. And Paul prays for the Ephesians, and really for us, that we might know it. Of course, if you've become a Christian, you know it in theory. You you know that there's eternal life awaiting you, but really he means that we might remember it. He means that we might cling to it. It's so easy to forget, right? Just look at the world around us. We live in a world that's absolutely ravaged by sin, by brokenness. Natural disasters, they abound year after year. A global pandemic, the last few years has changed everything. We have a crazy economy, we don't know what's going to happen. Multiple mass shootings in our own nation just in the last 2 weeks. International wars and terrorism. I don't recount these things to prophesy the apocalypse, but this is just the sad reality of our sin sick world. And it pulls our eyes away from the from the hope that only we have as Christians. And of course, this brokenness, it touches down into our own lives too, even if we feel a little bit distant from those national and international tragedies. All of us here know the searing pain of losing someone close to us. Many of us here, some in this room, know the pain of chronic illness. Many of us know what it's like to have broken family relationships, lost friendships, abandonment, rejection. Friends, if you're in Christ, even this present suffering, it does not compare with what we have in Christ. It ought not shake our hope if we remember and cling to that hope. Because a glorious future awaits you. These light and momentary afflictions are storing up for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So as you pray for yourself and, and for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for your entire church family, pray that we would remember our hope When we have our eyes set on the certain future of perfected glory, we can look on the brokenness of this world. We can persevere through it. And we can minister to it without being driven to despair. Let me say this briefly. If you're here today and you would not say that you have that hope in Christ, maybe you're not a believer in him, you haven't placed your faith in his perfect life lived on your behalf, and his death on the cross in your place, and his resurrection from the dead to conquer sin and death. If you haven't believed that yet and begun a relationship with him, talk to one of us after the service. Maybe someone invited you here. Talk to them. Find one of the pastors who you've seen on stage today. Even come talk to me after the service. We would love to share with you more how you can have this hope as well that is not shaken by the things around us in this world. And the thing that Paul prays that we would remember and cling to. Now next, as Paul continues, he prays in verse 18 that the Ephesians would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And by this, he's getting at the fourth thing that we ought to pray for, is to pray that we would rest in his delight. Pray that we would rest in his delight. Admittedly, this wording is gonna require a little bit of an explanation of how, how I came to this conclusion from the text here, but follow with me. So the statement reads, the riches of his, that's Christ's, Glorious inheritance in the saints. And often in the New Testament, and even in this letter to the Ephesians, when the word inheritance comes up, it's usually referring to our inheritance in Christ, what we receive from and in Him. But here, Paul speaks of Christ's inheritance in the saints. Who are the saints? It's the church. It's the family of God who have been redeemed by faith, who have repented from sin and believed the gospel and therefore are walking with him. It's you and it's me if we've come to him by faith. Now that's crazy, right? That we are his inheritance. This might sound a little odd to your ears, but please trust me, I'm not glorifying you and me, neither is the Apostle Paul. Apart from Christ, we are lost, we are stained by sin, and we are unworthy of God. But this truth that we are his inheritance is actually something that flows all through the Bible. Consider the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people, Israel his own inheritance. Consider the words of Jesus himself. We're looking back at John 17 again as Jesus prays to the Father. Consider the words that Jesus says when he speaks of the church. He says in verse 6, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. There's a sense that Jesus receives the saints from the Father. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the world's foundation. Friends, those are the words of Jesus in John 17. He says that God gave us to him as a gift, an inheritance from out of the world. And Paul describes us not just as an inheritance, but a glorious inheritance, in a sense, as Christ's very riches. We are a prized possession. Those of us who embrace a more reformed theology might struggle with this statement, at least on its surface. This agrees with reformed theology, but sometimes our bent goes the other direction. I'm not going to get into all the details of reformed theology. It's something that many of us here uh, embrace, but one of the things that reformed theology will emphasize is that in our natural state, human beings are corrupt to the core and only deserving of God's wrath and God's judgment, that there's nothing good in us. Have you seen this meme before, but how do you know if your dog has become reformed? You come to me and you say, who's a good boy? And your dog says, no one is good, not even one. That's how you know. But this delight that God has in us, it's not because of anything inherently good in us. It's not because of anything in us morally. It's because by faith we're identified with Jesus' own purity and righteousness. Because God, because of nothing in ourselves, simply chose us to be a gift to the Son, to be his prized possession. In him we are a purified, Possession, redeemed out of an impure world. How revolutionary should this truth be if we really come to embrace it? Won't that cause us to grow in the knowledge and the love of God? How much rest should this give us from our labors when we feel that voice of condemnation from our flesh, from our enemy? Knowing that we are his portion, that we are his inheritance that we are his prized possession and the object of his saving delight. Pray for this church. Pray for your fellow believers that sit around you today, that we would all know this more deeply. We'd all remember and rest in this truth, that despite our sin, we've been chosen and redeemed and given to Jesus as his prized possession, his bride, the children of God. But again, Paul keeps moving. He doesn't stop there. This knowledge of God that unshakable future-facing hope, this rest in his delight, it ought to propel us into a new kind of living. And Paul shows us next to pray that we would live in his power, to pray that we would live in his power. Let's look to verses 19 to 21. Verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, Which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Here Paul takes a moment just to expound a little bit more on what he means when he speaks of the power of God. And of all the things he could say, he could talk about creation and miracles or all kinds of things he could point to, but he points directly to the greatest example of God's victory in all of Scripture. That's the resurrection of Jesus, his defeat of death, and his ascension to the Father where God has now enthroned him above every power in heaven and on earth. Again, all of this, as Paul has already been doing, it all still centers around our great salvation. This example is his greatest, most victorious, most triumphant display of power. Again, you look back to the Old Testament and we see the same kind of thing. We see the Old Testament praising the power of Yahweh. It always has to do with his power to save his people. With his strong right arm, how he pulled the people out of Egypt, right? The Exodus is so often the example that we get in the Old Testament. When it speaks of how powerful God is, it speaks of how he brought them out of Egypt and established them in a land. And just as he brought the Israelites out of slavery to Egypt and established them in the land of Canaan, so he brings us out of slavery to sin and death and establishes us in his kingdom which one day will fill the entire earth in a reunited new heaven and new earth for all eternity. Now notice here that his power to save is for us. It says in verse 19, his incomparably great power is for us believe. But not only that, this power is given to us. If we were to jump ahead to Ephesians chapter 2, you would see this idea of Jesus being enthroned come up again. You'd see in Ephesians 2.6 that we have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms. You and me, seated with him, sharing in his victory. His victory is ours. Now It would be easy to think that And this is where a lot of preachers go with this kind of talk is they start to talk about a prosperity message, right? We won't have a visible triumph over every circumstance in in this life. I'm not saying that by saying that we're seated with him and we have victory over all things. We won't always look powerful or prominent or victorious. Sometimes just the opposite, right? His power is made perfect in weakness. His kingdom is not of this world. Jesus himself said that. But no matter our circumstance or what hardships that you and I face in this life, we can rest assured that our sin is conquered, that our death is not final, that we will triumph over that, and that our victory awaits us. We are raised from the dead, seated with him, and all things are under his feet, and because of that, all things are also under our feet. So friends, as we pray for ourselves and for one another, again, this should just give us confidence in what we're praying for. Do you pray for a person to be free from sin, whatever that sin might be, no matter how much of a hold it has had on them, remember that Christ's incomparably great power to save is leveraged on their behalf. It exists for them. It was given to them. Every power in heaven and on earth that wars against us, all of us in this room, all of those powers are under his feet, and at the right time, every enemy of ours will be crushed. And might Redeemer Community Church be a place where his victory is trusted fully, where his power is on display, not in transformed circumstances, but in transformed, sanctified lives. Not always invisible, miraculous things, though we certainly ask for those, but in looking more like Jesus and knowing that our future is secure in him. Pray that we might more fully know his power and live in the reality of it. But finally, the power of God, it doesn't end with us. Of course it is for us. Of course it comes to us. But it's also this unstoppable force that God intends for it to move through us and beyond us so that Christ might have dominion over all things. And for this, let's read verses 22 and 23 to see the final thing that we can pray for. At least in this passage. Verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So finally we see here that we can pray that we would participate in his mission. Pray that we would participate in his mission. Now continuing from what Paul was saying before about Jesus being enthroned over every ruler and power and authority and dominion, it says here that All things are under his feet and that ultimately his mission is to fill all things. Maybe in your translation it says something like fill all in all. But here's the question. Who does he use to fill all things? The church. His body. It says that we are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Brothers and sisters, we, the church, are the very fullness by which... He then goes and fills all things. So is it any wonder then that we're called Christians, which literally means little Christ? No wonder. We're going and being sent out to go do his work. We, the body, who accomplish this work, directed by Christ, our head, we accomplish the work of invading every domain of our world and establishing his kingdom until the day he returns. So what this means is that the ultimate visible demonstration of his power is every single one of us in this room who know him. Going out to wherever God has placed us, displaying his redeeming work, and carrying forth his message. So as you return to your neighborhood today, remember that Jesus intends to fill all things in all ways. He intends to fill your part of the city by you being placed there as his representative, because the church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You're sent out as his ambassador, representing his kingdom. As you go to work tomorrow, remember that Jesus intends to fill that place by you displaying his love, his character, his values, his good news. As missionaries are sent out of this church and church planters are sent out, that's the goal is that Jesus would fill everything in every place in every way. The Eason family, in a couple years, to go further east in North Carolina, and to plant a church, is that God might fill everything in every way. Us being sent to Concord, as we go and we church plant there, that's that God might fill the Charlotte area with his presence, every place, everything, and every way. The Nelsons being sent out to the Balkans, is that Jesus' name might be proclaimed, and him glorified in every place and in every way. And even just practically as we've gone to Concord and begun praying for these kinds of things, praying specific things in the lives of people, it's just amazing to reflect on the ways that God has brought people in our path who need to know him, whether they need to be more deeply discipled or whether they need to hear the message of Christ for the first time. It's just amazing seeing him do that. And we can see his desire to fill their hearts and to fill those places with his goodness, with his presence. He's using us for that. So church, let's pray for this. And Lord willing, as we go about these kinds of works, we'll see it carry on into many more disciples made and many more churches planted in the years and generations to come. But please, please, please don't write yourself out of this if you're not going to plant a church, if you're not in vocational ministry. Every job that each one of you have, every neighborhood you've been placed in, every family that you belong to, needs Christ. And he's placed you there to bring his presence. And brothers and sisters, when we pray, let's pray to this end, not only for ourselves, but also every person at, the, at Redeemer, that we would take up this mantle and to be the means by which he fills all things in Fuquay and Wake County and to the ends of the earth. It's his mission, it's his plan that we see right on the pages of Scripture, and by his grace, we get to take part in seeing it fulfilled. So as we bring all of this together, if, if we're going to follow Paul's example in prayer, we pray first in thankfulness for every bit of spiritual fruit that we see. We pray that we and the rest of our spiritual family in Christ might know God ever more deeply. I pray that we would keep our eyes fixated on the eternal hope that we have in Christ, resting in his delightful possession of us and living in his power and filling every place with his presence. You and I and every Christian we know, we need prayer for this, And really, this prayer at its core, from start to finish, is just a celebration of the gospel, right? It's thanking God for what he's already done in Christ. It's acknowledging the fruit that already exists, and it's praying that it would take root ever more deeply, having its full effect in our lives, both individually and corporately. And this kind of prayer should arm you to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ every day. Now I hope what you'll do as a result of this is continue to use a tool like Slack, which is an amazing place for us when we have something going on in our lives to share a prayer request and to get prayed for right on the spot for that thing. What an amazing tool. We are stealing that idea at Risen Church in Concord because it's amazing. God hears every single one of those prayers and so often we've seen those kinds of things answered in very, very powerful ways. What a blessing it is to be able to intercede for a brother or sister in need, but I hope that you'll also commit to pray regularly in just a consistent, maybe even a disciplined way for every name in the Redeemer directory. Pray for Redeemer as an entire church that these things that we see in Scripture would be true here of Redeemer as a whole and of every single part of this body. All of us need this prayer and all of us have the joy of being able to pray this prayer for ourselves and the others around us. And we know that this is the kind of prayer that, get, that God gives a delightful and resounding yes to. Now, what might God do to deepen our spiritual eyes and to propel us out on this mission if we all pray this for one another and for this church as a whole? Let's try it and see. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this example that we have in Ephesians 1. Of a spirit-inspired prayer for the church. Thank you for the example we have here. Thank you for what we've been able to learn about what you intend for us and what we can join you in praying for. I pray that you would that you would produce in us, again, as an entire body, and then every person here as individual Christians, produce these things that we see here in this passage. I pray, Lord, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message
1: from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.